Net Promoter School was a uh, turning point in our business. Uh, my regret is I didn't do it earlier. When I first uh, read the article, that famous article in the Harvard Business Review, I waited to until one of the uh, authors of the, of the book that came out a few years later visited Australia, and then I uh, really recognised that this was a the first time ever you'd been able to measure customer experience objectively and be able to compare that score with not just companies in your industry, but companies around the world and companies in other industries. In that sense, it, provi- it really kind of allowed us to sort of measure uh, what we stood for. But I think the other important part about it is that it was one number. And the power of one number, one truth, guiding an organisation uh, can't be underestimated. Hello and welcome to The Melting Pot. I'm your host, Dominic Monkhouse. The Melting Pot is a result of my hunger and curiosity for optimizing business performance, exploring corporate culture, customer addiction, and building high-performing teams. It's full of advice from my guests, entrepreneurs, fellow business authors, and examples from some of my work over the last few years, coaching the CEOs and leadership teams of some amazingly successful tech firms. The Melting Pot is my attempt to synthesize what I've learned along the way, to help you build a highly scalable business and realize the potential of your life's work. If you enjoy the episode, head over to monkhouseandcompany.com forward slash podcast to find today's show notes and more editions of The Melting Pot. While you're there, if you subscribe to the newsletter, you can pick up a copy of my new book, Plan B, How to Scale Your Technology Business Faster and Achieve Plan A. Enjoy. Hello, today I'm talking to David Tudhope, the founder and CEO of Macquarie Telecom Group in Australia. Macquarie Telecom Group provide telecommunications, phones, data data connections, data center and cloud services. And I've, I've worked with David and his team for a number of years. In fact, I think that the last time we recorded a podcast, I think he was guest number three or four, and their market cap then a few years ago was... 350 million Australian dollars. Just looking today, and their market cap is 1.13 billion Australian dollars, and they've had a fantastic year. And so I'm talking to David about, I guess, what drives, what underpins their business success. And for them, it's net promoter score. That is, and we talked to David about his purpose, how when he founded the business, his purpose was absolutely rock solid founded in 1992 when telco was deregulated in australia and he founded the business with a clear purpose and how that purpose has remained true all the way through i'm david chitope chief executive macquarie telecom group from sydney australia and david you're the founder as well i am uh, co-founded the business uh, with uh, brother aiden way back in uh, 1992 and you're now you're a public business? So we, uh, we listed the company uh, about uh, 20 years ago. Uh, and, uh, you know, we try and strike that balance between being uh, sort of entrepreneurial and uh, the company, the, 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 the business builders with uh, the best of being a public company with sort of risk management and governance. So there's a constant sort of tension between uh, those two things because on one hand, you don't want to lose the entrepreneurialism. On the other hand, you've got to, take the best of being a public company and, you know, that's uh, as people join the business, you know, sometimes it gets pushed and pulled one way or the other, but but trying to strike the best of both is uh, is our goal. 
And your your customer base is almost exclusively in Australia. And yes. so, what sort of what what sort of year have you had? Yeah, look, we've had a year where we've really had to focus on uh, what's uh, what's important, uh, what will make the difference. Uh, and uh, fortunately, we had a lot of programs in flight. Uh, so we really decided to use the last uh, nine months since COVID came about to focus on execution and uh, making a success of what we had in flight. And that, I think, was frankly a, a, real, a real benefit. We also decided to focus in on our core of customer experience, which is uh, talks to our company purpose. And uh, for that reason, we really sort of thought, you know what, at a time like this, people will value great customer experience even more than, than normal. So um, uh, for that reason, we really kind of doubled down on, on customer experience. And you know, I think we've seen some great uh, feedback from customers as a result. And what's your purpose? The, the, I mean, it, it, people often have a purpose which they sort of retrofit to their business, but yours, yours has remained true from when you founded the business. Yeah, okay. our company purpose is to make a difference in markets that are underserved and overcharged, and uh, we've had that since we began twenty-eight years ago. It really becomes our compass from which we make good decisions, and we sometimes say no to things. We sometimes pause products before they're ready. Before the, until they're ready to be launched, because we know that whatever we do, um, the essence of our of what we stand for is that great customer experience. And and your your competitors have remained also uh, fairly resolute on their um, a, a your your main competitors have stayed the same, but also their sort of lack of focus on customer success has has also has also remained resolute, hasn't it? Well, yeah, I come from an industry that um, serially underserves uh, and overcharges its customers. Uh, in the telecom industry, it's still the case. Uh, we still have twice the number of complaints in Australia to the telecommunications ombudsman as the banking industry does to the banking ombudsman. I mean, that's, that's pretty bad to have twice as many complaints. And that's sort of an objective measure. But sub- subjectively, um, our industry has gone through a program in the last decade of offshoring and outsourcing customer service. Uh, there's been uh, a sort of a hollowing out of many of the capabilities, which is not unique to Australia, but certainly is evident here as well. And that's this has only sort of aggravated the, uh, the, the uh, disastrous results in terms of customer experience. David, we met, uh, we met, oh, blimey, I was still at Pier 1, I think, and you guys were on a journey. You, you were wondering whether net promoter score would be something that was worth deploying inside inside your business. Um, I wonder whether you could tell me what what the genesis was of that of that sort of line of thinking at the time. Nipromo School was a uh, turning point in our business. Uh, my regret is I didn't do it earlier. When I first uh, read the article, that famous article in the Harvard Business Review, I waited to until one of the uh, authors of the of the book that came out a few years later, Visit Australia, and then I you know, really recognised that this was a the first time ever you'd been able to measure customer experience objectively and be able to compare that score with not just companies in your industry but companies around the world and companies in other industries. In that sense, it, provi- it really kind of allowed us to sort of measure uh, what we stood for. But I think the other important part about it is that it was one number. And the power of one number, one truth, 
guiding an organisation uh, can't be underestimated. And that also, I think, was compelling for us. And we adopted it entirely. We didn't, we didn't, wasn't and, it wasn't compromised. It was, it was entirely adopted. And I think that's really what's worked so well for us. Well, and you've even, uh, you've even had uh, Fred Reichel, the author of that Harvard Business Review paper, visit you, haven't you? Look, uh, Fred Reichel's an extraordinary man, and uh, he's, I think, done a great service to the to the world and his research and the Net Promoter Score system. And we were fortunate that he did, did visit Australia and um, had the opportunity to to see uh, what we were doing as an organisation um, and how we really adopted the program, and maybe a few things we had even done that had innovated on um, some of that original research in terms of the way we applied it. Certainly, one of the ones that's been most effective for our business is transparency. Uh, we are more transparent with the promoter score than, than I think most organisations. And what that means is we report on the net promoter score uh, internally on a real-time basis. Um, we put it on screens. We put it um, on the website, in fact, on an, on an average basis. And we divide it up by by the product, by geography, and we also stack rank by and, and divide up by, by individuals so that you've got complete transparency about how as an organisation we're performing. And also, um, I think, I was going to say uniquely, but definitely uh, rarely do organisations try so hard to get the response rates high enough to be able to do it fairly by employee. And I think that you know, even even in the um, even in the hub, your your uh, your contact centre, where you know, you turning it, gamifying it, and turning it into that the engineers in there becoming heroes as a result of getting ten tens in a row, or legends. Sorry. Yeah, we call them legends, and that and that, that that's bringing up that competitiveness is, is is always very powerful. But I think a lot of it's about the peer group pressure as well. Uh, nobody wants to be stacked ranked at the bottom of the bottom of the list, and certainly not uh, you know in, in the yellow or red colours. So you, you you just you just really harness people's emotions, and that's really been one of the important benefits we've found. Is it's moved it away from another management program. Uh, it's moved it into the realm of uh, something that everybody is working towards the NPS score because it's their score as much as it is the company's score or my score. And when you get that level of ownership at an individual level, at a product level, at a geography level, you really do get some magic because people feel can see the impact of their actions in the, way, in the customer experience and the score that comes back to them. But to do that effectively, you've got to have enough samples that there is a meaningful number for every, everybody and it doesn't get swayed by just the happy or happy ones um, or the ones at the, ex- the extremes. If you've got a big enough sample, people do see it as a valid reflection of what they're doing and they will make adjustments and change the way they do things, whether it be product managers changing products or individuals changing the way they interact with customers. And what, if you think about, you know, did you, did, did you take any wrong steps or stumbles? Are there some things you did when you rolled the program out at some point? where you thought, oh, God, if only I'd had time, I'd have done that differently? Yes. Look, look, look I think the part that we uh, probably struggled the most was we moved, started to move outside the contact centres. You have people where culturally the idea of being measured um, on what they're doing every day is something they're not familiar with. 
So there was areas like finance, for example, which were very reluctant to be measured on Net Promoter Score because they just saw that's well, that's what contact centres do. And it took a little while to realise that there's a very important part of what finance does around sort of billing inquiries where the way they resolve those billing inquiries has a huge impact on the customer experience. And uh, interestingly, when we started to measure them and, they, and they, we found that while they felt that they were the end of the food chain, that they were really dealing with billing questions that had been caused by people upstream doing or not doing certain things, what we in fact found was that while the majority of the responses to customers was the bill was correct, if we gave that answer to customers in less than a week, we got a much higher net promoter score result. So it, whether the answer was, whatever the answer was, uh, the speed of response was really critical. And if we didn't have an answer, getting back to the customer was just an update that we're working on it, and when we do expect to have a response, made all the difference. And that really resolved net promoter score for the finance team outside of a couple of individuals, and that was just a matter of individual coaching. But something because that was probably the biggest challenge. I think if I had time again, Dom, is probably some of those areas which were culturally um, un- unfamiliar with net promoter score and being measured, I think I would have probably tackled them earlier. Or, or even unfamiliar with the concept of customer service. Um, I was, I, as you were talking about finance, I was thinking we had clients with us on the farm last week and the finance director went apoplectic because he'd had an email from one of their suppliers finance team saying you're in default we're going to close close down your account we're going to suspend your credit line blah 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 they spent 11 million dollars a year with these, these guys and they were and they were allegedly in default for 36 dollars and so it just it was just that sort of you know the the computer says you're in default the company says we're going to send you a, a nasty letter and no human interaction and you know you contact them and they say well it's true and it's like mm, i'm not sure you really being as empathetic here as you could be. <laughs> well, you, you know, the, the point you make is the power of storytelling. I, mean, I guess you shared a story there, one of your, one of, you knew. And I'd say inside our business, uh, one of the things that's very powerful when you deal with people who don't, aren't regularly speaking with customers is storytelling. And this idea of um, bringing to life great stories of customer, amazing customer experience it's very important. We, we actually learned this idea not from our industry but from the hotel industry. So in the hospitality industry, this is sort of large corporate sort of four- and five-star hotels. Uh, in many parts of the world, um, they've got staff on uh, typically you know, minimum wages and they're serving people in, in those hotels, often you know, third-world countries, who earn and have a lifestyle that they could not imagine. And the way they deal with that to help those staff understand what somebody might want is through the power of storytelling. They have a, they have a system, and we borrowed this from the Ritz-Carlton Company, of doing what they call lineups, which is basically a team meeting except you don't get to sit down. It's before the shift starts. It's down the bowels of the hotel. Everyone lines up, and uh, the team leader tells a story. And they collect those stories centrally and share them. And we thought that was a brilliant idea. In our organisation, you, you do get to sit down for a team meeting, um, but we share, we, we share stories from our, across our organisation of people who do amazing expressive experience, fantastic result. 
And one of the things that comes through those stories is, yes, they're stories you remember long after you've forgotten all the, the words from the manager, but they're also stories that often talk to the fact that it's not so much what you do, but it's the way you do it. And it removes the idea that to get a, a fantastic customer response, you have to do something unnatural. Um, and the vast majority of the time, it's just people who just do, extra, do ordinary things extraordinarily well. And they really look for opportunities to delight the customer rather than just do what's expected or requested. Well, and you are, you gather that information, I think, better than any anybody else I've seen. Because you, you pulled – because I'm, I'm thinking to – Dan Pink wrote a great book about Drive where he talks about how, how purpose is motivational to and – and he tells the story about people getting, uh, I think, from uh, – Harvard alumni, uh, alumni saying, you know, and when people tell the story about how having gone to Harvard impacted them personally, people go out and gather more money. And inside your organization, you've got some big headline stories that you tell as part of your staff onboarding. But every week, those story, you're, you're capturing and sharing how, how staff at Macquarie Telecom Group made a difference to the lives of ordinary customers, like every day, every week, and, and sharing that. And have you got have you got some – you remember any recent stories? <laughs> I, don't want to, <laughs> I was going to say I don't want to put you on the spot, but now I have. So Yeah, look, look, look we, you're absolutely right, Don. We collect these stories weekly um, and we share them weekly. We, have a, uh, we share them in team meetings. We also share them in the company meeting every month or so, and that, that, that works incredibly well. We've, we actually have worked out that there is an art to storytelling uh, and uh, the uh, – we have a gentleman who the role has moved around in the organisation, but the current gentleman is uh, based in our Perth office, uh, which um, is uh, some of your uh, listeners may know is the most remote city uh, in the world. And uh, he is a talented storyteller. Uh, he, he is a uh, charming Irishman um, and does fit the mould of uh, the great Irish storyteller. But what, he's, what he really does, he draws out the elements of the story and, we, and we've really spent some time working out what creates a good story, uh, not just in the eyes of management but in the eyes of the ordinary listener and really captures people. Now, I'd say the elements of our story that we get consistently is um, customer rings in, it's nearly always something, something hasn't worked, the customer's distressed, um, the customer feels the pressure of hundreds of staff um, looking over their shoulder, going, why isn't our telecom service or why isn't uh, our uh, cloud service working? They're professional and polite, but, they're, but the, the, the emotion is just beneath the surface. They reach our contact centre. The contact centre kind of collects the details. One of the challenges is we have to ask questions uh, that sometimes the, co- the customer sees as being um, unnecessary basic questions about are things turned on, have they checked? Because our experience is that uh, nearly half the time, um, the reason why the service is not working is because uh, someone's kicked the router under the under the uh, branch office desk or someone in IT has disconnected a, a service but not, not reconnected it again, and the blue cable piece. So, so that, that, that usually creates even more angst because now we're asking things that almost challenges them. but. Um, we have to do it because. Are you telling me, uh, are you, telling me you think I'm stupid? Yeah, there's a bit of that. There's a bit of that. It's like, who do you think I am, right? I'm a, uh, you know, I'm a 35 year old senior IT manager, and you're asking me to check something, um, and I wouldn't be ringing you if I thought it wasn't uh, working. 
Yeah, but uh, half the time they go, oh, yeah, now I'm a bit embarrassed. Nearly half the time they they come back very sheepish and say, yeah, actually in the in the distant branch someone had did kick the route or someone didn't reconnect the blue cable. And But then come back to our story here, and the, the, the key is for recovery, and that's where the magic's at. So where it's a quick fix, all good, um, and we deal with it, you know, professionally polite. But where there's a genuine recovery situation, a lot of the great stories involve people doing things that um, are unexpected, that are delight. And that usually means um, go, going out to site. It means um, doing things that maybe, strictly speaking, aren't part of our responsibility but are closely adjacent to it. Uh, we have had stories of people taking mobile phones to the airport only to find the person's about to go through the gate and rushing the phone to them at the gate. Um, we've had people... Um, personally driving out to resolve side issues um, where the technician has left has left them at you know at, at uh, end of business hours and we've had to resolve it for the customer um, we've had times we've had to reconnect power for customers because the electrician can't be brought back to site again we've had times we've been diagnosing application issues where strictly they're not part of us but just to clarify is it us or the application that's the issue so it's, it's really that desire to to make a difference, to resolve it in the moment and accept the fact that sometimes the boundaries between our service and, and the resolution of the, cust- the customer needs to resolve the matter aren't always clear. Uh, but at the same time, what we're resolving is just an adjacency to what we our core competency. And that works so well. Um, and that emotion we heard about that at the beginning um, quickly moves to an absolute appreciation that um, we are doing things that, no other telecom company would do. And so you've uh, this year you've you've been recognised for your customer service by some global award. What what's the what's the award program that you've that have, no, that have noticed your diligence? Well, uh, in our industry, uh, the, uh, the the big global awards are called the World Communications Award. Uh, they've been running 22 years in, in, at, based out of London. Uh, there's some 60 judges from around the world, uh, none of whom I knew. Uh, or, and um, every year there's about 400, 450 entries. Uh, and last year, this year was 450 entries as well. Um, we won the award this year for the best customer experience in the world. It's the first time an Australian company has won that award. Um, and uh, I'm also very privileged to be have been named CEO of the year for from the same awards. Very good. Yeah, I was re-listening to Good to Great, and in there, Jim Collins is talking about Sam Walton saying, you know, people think it was an overnight success, you know, and here and here, here you've got you started a business, you know, with a with a setting the company the mandate to deliver great customer service, and here you are, almost overnight. Um, sort of 20 years later, being the first Australian company to win a global award. Well done. Congratulations. Thank you, Dom. It's, it's a lot of hard work. It is, yeah. For us, it's, uh, I mean, it's been 28 years since we started, but probably 10 years since we really immersed ourselves in the uh, net promoter score measurement of our company purpose. Uh, and, we, and I think part of our success is just really focusing on outstanding execution and trying to find ways to, to innovate in customer experience as well as innovate uh, technically. And um, I'm in industries that 
where uh, you know heroes can become feather dusters very quickly, and uh, whether it be our telecom business, our cloud business, our data center business, or our government cybersecurity business, we know just how important it is to uh, to innovate and to adapt um, as the years grow on. And uh, this, these awards do mean a lot to us. How does it show up in terms of the people that you hire? Do you think? Do you can you take? Have you now built? a process where you're only hiring people who who have a customer service gene or, or do you even think that do you even think that's a thing i mean are there are there some people who've left your organization over over time because they just couldn't couldn't get their heads around delivering great service we know you're hiring differently or if you now build a program that anyone who can breathe can come in and be great hmm I think we've really honed in on the attributes of people that have a great customer experience and the we've really tuned the intake of new staff, the graduate trainees, both technical and non-technical trainees. And as the years have gone on, those, those people have grown into right through our organisation. We find that they're very committed to our company purpose. Uh, they really do adapt very well. Um, and they've definitely brought that DNA with them. Ten years on, um, since we've really sort of ramped up the uh, the program to have a customer experience focus, we're really seeing the benefits of that now because, you know, the ones who, who joined us at, you know, 20, 21, 22, 23 years of age and are now in their early 30s. And uh, they're taking on roles of, you know, lots of responsibility, getting great results for us. We need to keep hiring laterally, of course, uh, as the company's growing. Uh, and without question, one of the things we look for is whether the person understands what great customer experience is. It is difficult because for a lot of a lot of people coming from organisations where they, at a senior level, know how to talk about customer service in an authoritative way, you've got to try and strip that back and go, do they actually really understand what great customer service looks like? Have they experienced personally great customer service? And what were the attributes of that? And it's only when we kind of peel back the words do we get to see also for those lateral recruits to understand what we're about as an organization. It's funny, isn't it, that people can say a thing and, and then still have no concept of, of what it means and or, or, be, or got an example of when they've delivered it themselves. Exactly our experience. And I think sometimes there's a bit of a desire to sort of seek, seek another way to measure customer experience. Um, oh, we tried this, we tried that. Um, that didn't work. It always seems to be the ga- the dials and the gauges that are the problem as opposed to the end experience. And I think for a lot of those individuals that, that they really haven't ever had, had the opportunity to, to experience what great customer experience look like or give it because they've probably often been quite distracted with the, the measurement of it and, and debating um, whether that, that those, those dials should be somehow either be differently presented um, or a different order or different weighting. I was just thinking one of the, um, the, you know, the way in which we've, uh, we've worked over the last few years together is, is, you know, one of the innovations that you and your team have is that, you know, every year you come up with a strategic imperative and, and COVID, you know, put the kibosh on it for this year, but over the last few years, you know, each year you and the team have got together and said, what's our strategic imperative? And I've helped you meet some companies who've solved that problem already in the UK. 
And I was just thinking one of the, I remember we met an IT infrastructure business in the UK a couple of years ago and they said, oh yeah, no, we tried net promoter score. It didn't work for us. And I, and when people say that to me, I always think, yeah, cause you'd really like like a score of 70 or 80, but you're a bit rubbish. And so it didn't work for you because you just couldn't, you know, you just couldn't be asked to put the effort in to deliver great customer service. You just, you got this, you got the answer and it wasn't good. So you gave up. You just went back to mediocrity. Yeah, it's it's really tr- it's very true right across the organisation that people yeah it, it's, it's the number that and the score that 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 gets in the way of actually making the change. Look, we've started our NPS journey. We're at plus fourteen, which was the best of a bad bunch in telecom sector. Uh, we, it's today plus seventy two, which is world class. And there's parts of our business, of course, that get even more than that again. And. The key to our success has been that absolute focus on how we're going to change the experience. But along the way, there were times when we were stuck in the 30s um, and we found that organisationally we had to not change things centrally as much and empower people at the front line who could make the small dial changes that would have the biggest impact. That was the that was what really helped move us from the 30s uh, right through to the 50s. And then there were new challenges we got to the 50s. And today, even today, um, we've found that the, the the ability to sort of hold true to that transparency has been so important. To your point about other companies, one of the common things we find, and we get people visiting us probably once a week, um, ask about a net promoter or experience. We're very open and share it. One of the common things that I see is that people are very uncomfortable with transparency. The idea of sharing net promoter score on a real-time basis with lots of drill down in many organisations just culturally is very difficult uh, and they'd much rather sort of sort of aggregate it all up and then share it every quarter or every six months in some carefully packaged executive presentation to the company where they sort of try to explain away a bad result or kind of build people up for a slightly better result. They kind of missed the point. The point is it's about sharing on a real-time basis so people can tune things and make it better rather than it being some sort of performance report card at the end of the half. One of the things that I I was thinking about, uh, and maybe I've misunderstood this, but certainly in the telco business, one of the things that you ended up doing is is focusing on a core customer that that you could serve extremely well and that cared about being served well. So you I guess when you started on the journey, you, you had a much broader offering and customer types. And somehow the net promoter score even focused you in on who your core customer was in a, in a way that most companies don't do because they're chasing, maybe they're focused on short-term revenue and, and aren't prepared to give something up. But the outcome has been outstanding, outstandingly low churn or, or outstandingly high retention. Yeah. Without, we said our company focus um, – as in the telecom business, has been companies with hundreds or thousands of staff. We set our focus in cloud services and our government businesses medium to large deal size. So it doesn't always correlate with customer size. And we've set some numbers around those range, what that, how we define that. Where it's been really important is that no matter how you define it, there's always that temptation to operate either below or above the target market because of prior relationships, because of perceptions that uh, the need there is is stronger. And Net Promoter Score has just reinforced to us over and over again that we have we are built for organisations that have all the complexity um, and the challenges of 
a uh, very large organization, but just like the depth of IT skills to, to be able to manage it. They have all the needs of a very large organization in terms of uptime for their telecom services, but lack the internal um, IT team to chase the telecom company and work all the relationships to try to cut through the, the offshore uh, service challenges. So for us, we've just learned over and over again that, that our target market is what we're built for, and that's the one that this, this whole service message resonates with so strongly. And uh, on a tactical on a tactical note, that when you've seen because you've you stratified your customers by by size, and so you you know you've then got a small number of high value customers, and typically you know sending out sending out an email to the CEOs of those larger customers of yours gets a pretty low response rate. What did you what did you do to make sure that the relationship score you still ended up with good enough response rates for it to be meaningful. Yeah, the, the key is the uh, fast feedback loop. Uh, this is the idea that when, when we do the relationship uh, surveys and get the NPS score for that, uh, we do it orally, um, but then we feed it back straight away to the not just the, the relationship manager, but their manager and the executive. And it's the one-up supervisor who makes the first phone call to try and draw out exactly why the relationship result is what it is for you know for, for whether it's a low score or not, and that's been so successful because it's enabled us to fix things quickly. It also pleasantly surprises the person because they go, "Wow, you really value my feedback, and, you, and you're interested in understanding the why, and you've taken action." And that just gives them even more confidence that we care. Well, I was going to say, and that uh, that happens. You know, you, you and I probably both get maybe tens of net promoter score surveys a month, but nobody ever rings me. You know, I'm, I'm, I always fill in surveys because I love to see what happens as a result. And, and I'm, I'm never pleasantly surprised with a phone call. I'm normally very disappointed with no feedback at all. Look, that, that is the norm. And, and the fast feedback loop, the 24-hour phone call, wow. You go, that, geez, they really cared. One thing I'd add is that we've, as time's gone on, uh, we've, our detractors have reduced uh, very considerably, which I guess reflects in our score. We're, the place we've um, really focused on now is on the passives. And these are the people who score you a seven or eight in the zero to 10 score range. And in the passives, we've found people who just don't tend to be hard markers, nor are they uh, easy markers. They're kind of, but they mark you a seven or eight because there is something there, there is something that uh, they're not entirely happy with. But um, and we've found by by calling them back in that fast feedback loop, we really move them into promoters, giving us nines and tens out of ten, and just drawing out their level. But you know, I think for a lot of organisations, they're just focused on the detractors, and that does make sense. I mean, you've got to start there. But I think there's definitely some uh, some real gold amongst the the passives as well. Very good. Um- and David, what is it that you you know now that you wish you'd known earlier? Not necessarily about Net Promoter Score, but I think the as a as a leader, I think the part that we all know is important is having the right people, and we all and we all get it. 
But as the years have gone, I've just become even more and more tuned to the fact that if you have the right leaders, uh, they will they will bring with them the right people, and business becomes fun and much easier. Uh, and while people solve things in ways you hadn't imagined, uh, solve they are. And as a leader, I've become more tuned into how important it is to get those leadership people roles right. Um, and when they're not right, recognizing that is probably the cause of many other challenges that uh, are distracting you. Okay. Um, and uh, you read any business books recently that you think would be other people should pick up? Or maybe even, not even just recently, maybe uh, books along the way. Uh, this is probably the wrong answer for that question, but thanks to COVID, I watch a lot of Netflix. <laughs> <laughs> and my reading has reduced because I, ha- I don't have my nice long flights anymore. Uh, uh, the, my, my commute is only uh, 20 minutes um, now <laughs> instead of being many hours. So I can tell you a lot about Netflix series, which is, is probably the converse- conversation point in most parts of the world, but certainly is the conversation point here in Sydney as well. Uh, the... <laughs> Having said that, there have been some uh, outstanding books. One of the things I find talking about leadership is that, and I don't do this very often, but when I do occasionally reread a book, at different points in your life you get a very different takeaway. And I tend to I tend to read a lot of biographies uh, of leaders, and occasionally I read the book maybe you know ten years later, and you're at a different point in your career, and you I find you get very different learnings from that than you would have thought you you would have had 10 years ago because you pick up on things that um, suddenly seem a whole lot more important. You got what, uh, you got one that you've been reading recently or? Yeah, look, there's, look, there's, there's one I read, reread for a second time, which was the, uh, the biography on Kamada Turk, the founder of modern Turkey. Uh-huh. An extraordinary man who basically reinvented a country uh, from a sort of a decaying empire into a, a country that people you know, today are proud to be part of. And, uh, the first time I read the book, you know, there was there was um, the modern Middle East that came out came out of what was what was Khomeini Turk's country or empire for the first forty years of his life. But the way he really imagined Turkey in a very modern secular way, uh, the way he recognised that uh, what Turkey stood for, um, what would invigorate society in terms of the role of women. Uh, and that uh, the empire was no longer part of Turkey's future it was quite extraordinary for his time. Uh, and certainly amongst his contemporaries, he was almost unique in his in his reimagining of modern Turkey. But also to the way for a military man, who he really recognised how important it was to help all the different parts of Turkish society that were that had been uh, suffered enormously. In World War One, uh, from you know, the, the huge number of orphans in Turkey, uh, through to people who'd lost their livelihoods, through to Turks who'd been um, displaced from other parts of the Ottoman Empire and now found themselves back in Turkey for the first time in many many generations, and all of that he recognised uh, work solutions through and took some quite ambitious nation building type steps. And I thought, wow. There was someone um, who I thought, in the same way, in a very, a very different way, you know, in our own industries, we try to reimagine things. Um, here is someone who reimagined things in a in a different time. 
Oh, very good. Very good. So, uh, do you know the? Do you remember the author or or the title? It was called Ataturk. The author, I will, I will get back to you. No, 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 that's fine. We'll find. Uh, if I mean, if you could, that's great. Otherwise, I'm, I'm sure we can find it and stick it in the show notes. Yeah. David, uh, thank you very much indeed for your time uh, this evening for you, this morning for me. That's been an uh, absolute pleasure to chat to you again. Thank you, Dom. Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed that as much as I did. If you'd be kind enough to leave a review, it will really help other like-minded entrepreneurs find this podcast and grow our community. For all information relating to this episode, you can go to monkhouseandcompany.com forward slash podcast, where you'll find some cracking show notes, additional reading and links relating to our guest. There you can also find my blog and past episodes of my subjectively not crap newsletter, where I'll update you on the best articles I read that week, some recommended books and other podcasts. Thanks, and I will see you next week.